Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Well, hello, and welcome back to Brave New Teaching, and welcome to another author interview in our Camp BNT summer series of interviews with authors and debriefs of their books and their applications to our classroom. Hi, Amanda. Hello, Marie. I am so excited for today's interview. I am too. (laughs) Yes, everybody, listen. We always joke about like, yeah, we're going to make this going to be a quick episode. Yeah, it's just going to be real brief. Just quick, brief intro. And then we talk for like 25 minutes. This is actually going to be a brief intro because it's an extra long interview. Because there was just so much in this author. Her name is Joe Crona. She is from Canada, right? Upstairs Neighbors to us in the States. And (laughs) did you ever learn geography that way? I mean, I never called Canadians my upstairs neighbors. I feel like I remember something on Sesame Street from when I was little. I could be completely making this up, but I feel like, because I mean, a kid like me, I lived in a single family house my whole life. So until like college, I would not have understood any sort of like apartment complex references without like in my head I can see it where there's like different cast members and Muppets from the <laughs> from Sesame Street that are in a multi-level house that's been like cut so you can see all the or not level in a, like an apartment building and you can like see all the different floors does listeners does anybody else remember this or is this just me making this up I think it's you making I think this is why our intros are never short oh shut up okay so <laughs> back to our upstairs neighbor <laughs> Okay, okay, so this this, uh, this this is a pivot. I don't think people know that that we've been doing fiction True. all along, and now True. we're switching it up on everyone. We are, and I want to read a little bit from Joe's like flap her uh, intro from the inside of her book. <laughs> Flap's a funny word. Uh, let's just read it, shall we? She is an educated traveler, philosopher, spouse, and two spirited woman of Teesman. Oh man, I should have asked her how to say. She, she pronounces it in the episode for us. She, she does, and I just realized. Because I wrote, she's she's, she's of indigenous and uh, North American and European heritage. Yes. Um, she has over twenty five years experience in teaching both K-12 and post-secondary systems. She's a certified teacher, holds a master's degree in educational technology. She's been involved in uh, curriculum development and resource writing, professional learning through inquiry networks and indigenous education. She has supported transformation of British Columbia's K-12 system in a variety of roles, including working with a First Nations-led education advocacy organization and as an advisor to the BC Ministry of Education. And we do talk actually about quite a bit of this in the interview. And it's like one of those things where you sit there and you go, oh my gosh, you've done everything, Everything. right? Like I just remember being very humbled of like, wow, you have done all the things. And then she's like the nicest person just there 
sincerely oh, believes oh, in what she talks about, sincerely like is a driving force in reforming education, at least in British Columbia, but then also the things she talks about have echoes and can make waves at least across our continent. Um, and we do talk a little bit either in this interview or maybe in the extended that's in happy hour. I've got, I'm getting them mixed up about the implications and the uniqueness that is the indigenous experience to North America. Yeah. She was just fascinating. I took so many notes. I think this is, and I talk about this in our, in our debrief, but please listen to this interview. Even if you think it does not apply to you. Yeah. Yes. I- because it does. That's what I'm a little bit worried about is that people are going to see the title of this interview and think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. She says it flat out in her book. This is a book for educators who are non-Indigenous. If you are non-Indigenous, this is a pedagogical professional development book for you and really important for your growth as an educator no matter right what kind of students you have or where you are. This is important. And we found an incredible spokesperson for this side of your pedagogical and just kind of social, emotional, worldly growth in this world of teaching. So she is, she is one of the best and we had a, it's a long and wonderful conversation. She does a lot of cool things in this episode, like uh, doing the pronunciation of a lot of important languages and words and things. Um, So don't, well, you're already here, so you're going to listen. So I guess let's just, yeah. But share it. I mean, basically, here's here's the next thing. The, the, the beauty of this series of author interviews is that, and we've said it a couple of times, A, we can do the reading and a lot of the legwork ahead of time. So you could know ahead of time, listening to the interviews, listening to our debriefs, what is and isn't applicable at this state of your educational career or your journey or like whatever, whatever path you're on, right? Yes. And then there's also the like, share this. Because if you're finding it helpful, or maybe if you're like, it's not quite time for me yet, but maybe somebody else in your department or in your program or in your whatever mm-hmm. will pass these along, it's as quick as sending a link over a text or an email. And we've got all kinds of great stuff that goes along with it. So I think uh, with no further ado, we are ready for you to hear this phenomenal interview. Highly consider, please, joining Happy Hour because the extended interviews with these authors are also just gold. All right. Are you ready? They are gold. We should remind people where they can join Camp BNT. Yes. Head to the show notes. Or if you're feeling frisky, just go on to your web browser. What? No, <laughs> I don't know. Bad directions. That actually was really bad. The, <laughs> the, the, like, I heard it. I got distracted. Your eyelashes look really good today. They and do. I, they do. And I got distracted. And for some reason, apparently the word frisky came out and then web browser. Wait. And those are definitely two things that shouldn't be paired. Yeah. Or sorry, guys. Take out of the equation. <laughs> Listen, okay. folks, I'm sorry, but so I'm not no. that sorry because I actually think it's really funny. So okay. well, signed up for it. They're here. Listen, just go to the show notes or go to bravenewteaching.com slash camp. Okay. We'll see you there. Bye. Okay. Cue the music. You're listening to Brave New Teaching, and we are so much more than a podcast. We give teachers the inspiration, support, and tools to challenge the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a former English teacher from Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm a teacher from Southern California. Join us at bravenewteaching.com to find out more about our courses, festivals, and get every episode's show notes. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. All right, Brave New Teaching Community. 
community. Welcome back to another episode of Brave New Teaching in our series called Camp BNT. We have here on the podcast with us today a pretty phenomenal, I'm really excited for you all to listen to this conversation and then get your hands on her book. We have author Joe Crona with us today. Hello and welcome. Hello. Hi, Marie. Hi, Amanda. Hello. We are really excited to get into this conversation. It has so much to do with everything we've been talking about in general, but throughout this summer where we've been talking a lot about not just culturally responsive teaching, but really mindful ahead of the game, not responsive, but like pre, what am I trying to say? Beyond responsive. Beyond responsive, intentional, mindful practices that are always growing and learning. And this is going to be like perfect icing on the cake. So, Joe, would you please tell us, just start it off with a little bit about yourself, the journey that led you here today to this book in general, and then like basically what are you bringing into the world that is just so amazing? Oh, my goodness. Uh, the journey. <laughs> which yeah, journey, right? when, which fork in the road did I take and when? All of it. Yes. <laughs> um, came into education a little later, not until my 30s. Ended up teaching mostly at the secondary level, English language arts, a little bit of social studies, a little bit of humanities, but um, the power of story was so strong. I feel like it runs through my blood. So I had to, I had to follow that, that passion. I was teaching K-12 at secondary for quite a few years and got the opportunities to do a number of other things with some folks seconded to the Ministry of Education for a little while and some curriculum revision. And um, I do want to share a little bit about where I come from, because that impacts, I think, so much of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to introduce myself in Smalyak. And Smalyak is the language of the Simsian people. And I'll give a little bit more context after that. Uh, um, so what I just said in Smelyak was, my name is Joe. I belong to the Kitsumkalem First Nation, um, which is a Tsimsian nation in the northwest corner of British Columbia. And my clan is Raven or Ganhada. My traditional name is Nikki M. So given that context, that's um, my mother's people. I also have uh, French-English heritage on my uh, biological father's side. My time in education kind of leaned me into looking um, and doing some work more in Indigenous education. And for folks who, I know, I know you have listeners um, from a number of different countries all over the world, when I'm speaking about Indigenous education in the context of Canada, it is um, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. Actually, I should say First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, because I had a, a conversation with an Inuit educator once, and she said, you know, Inuit means people. So when you say Inuit peoples, you're kind of saying people peoples, and it sounds very obvious. <laughs> okay, let me reorder that to First Nations, yeah. Inuit and Métis peoples. Um, and I left the public system teaching, ended up working with the um, First Nations Education Advocacy Organization, and they're uh, an organization that spanned the province, their membership were First Nations, the province, and in that work got to kind of grow my understanding of how Indigenous knowledge systems 
have so much power in them and they can inform our education systems in such rich, rich ways, meaningful ways. So part of that work was working with a group of um, Indigenous educators, scholars, knowledge keepers during the development of a course called English First Peoples. And this was a course that was uniquely developed. It was the equivalent of the English 12 course in our, in our system here. And it was completely focused on authentic Indigenous literatures, oral literatures, written literatures, everything. Um, it was developed over a decade ago. A really, really powerful course. It's now become one of the options for a mandated edu- Indigenous education requirement in our graduation system. But that's another, another discussion. <laughs> and... Um, in the development of that, um, folks were, were asking themselves, what is going to be unique about this course? People didn't want to take the current English 12 and just insert Indigenous. Right. Yeah. Which I'm sure them. happens as much in Canada as it does here, where it's yeah. kind of like, oh, you know what? We, we kind of need some of that. Let's pepper it in versus. It, yeah. yeah. It sounds like you're you're talking more about a complete dismantling and rebuilding. Absolutely. Yeah. The question was like, what is it that we want to reflect in how the course gets taught, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that piece was a really powerful question. People um, mulled over that question for some time. The result of that was the articulation of the First Peoples Principles of Learning. So First Peoples being equivalent to Indigenous here. And um, those principles, when folks look at them, there are nine of them. They're, they're you know, you can, you can read them as, as nine separate principles. They are interconnected. But when you really come to when we really came to understand the potential impact of them in our classrooms, it was rather breathtaking, because it was it was for folks who look at those principles and say, "How am I going to make decisions in my teaching practice that reflect or honor those principles?" That the what happens in the classroom gets transformed, and it's transformed not only for learners but for educators as well. You know, these, mm. these principles focus on, on the importance of relationship, on identity, on understanding where we are and how we're connected to the land that supports us, among so many other things. And, you know, so much so that there have been in this system people coming from other education jurisdictions in the world to come see what's happening in BC because it's, it's been known as a, a pretty strong education system. And mm-hmm. there was a, a group of educators from Sweden or Finland quite a few years ago who saw these first people's principles of learning. They're on a poster in a school. And somebody said, well, why don't you just call them the principles of learning? Take off the first people's part. And that the educator they were talking to was wise enough to say, no, we don't want to continue to erase Indigenous knowledge systems in this country. We have a long history of doing that. Let's not anymore. Sure. Yeah. Let's let's acknowledge uh, intently or intentionally and loudly the origins exactly. of these principles, yeah. right? Yeah, like why? Why would we just <laughs> take them again? <laughs> exactly. Without yeah, and it's, yeah, because you know, we, we've got so many narratives about the false narratives about the lack of knowledge and value in Indigenous cultures on our continent. Sure. And this, you know, when we look at the First Peoples' principles of learning as an example of what has been known for centuries, especially from First Nations communities, and it's part of uh, this part of the country about effective approaches to teaching and learning, you know, that tells us so much more about the, the possibility of other knowledge that can inform mm-hmm. um, our world as well. So these, these, these principles have, ex- you know, 
They were articulated, and I say articulated rather than developed, because they have existed, but it was these folks who came together and said, okay, what is it we commonly sure. understand? Because that was going to be yeah. one of my questions, yeah. is more like, I'm, I'm not, from what I understand, it's like, I'm guessing that these principles were so steeped in oral tradition and going from generation to generation and passing down knowledge and probably not written out in a book the way that <laughs> absolutely <laughs> contemporary Western culture expects things to be if they are quote unquote legitimate, right? Within education. And so I think that's what I'm also really excited to hear about more of as you keep going is how you have taken your knowledge and understanding of your own heritage and the heritage of those around you to be able to then marry that with your experience in the more industrial education mm-hmm. system. And like you're saying, still still saying it's the first people's principles of education. Yeah. It's yeah. not yeah. Well, that's what even makes it a bit more complex is for folks who might not be aware, um, many folks within this province aren't aware, British Columbia is home to the largest number of First Nations in the entire country. There are more Indigenous languages spoken here than the rest of Canada combined. And wow. what um, wow. what that results in is, you know, that, that complexity of, you know, over 200 First Nations. Some are very, very small. There's over 30 uh-huh. language groups. So it was the you know people from different organizations and 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 backgrounds in this province coming together and saying what is it we believe in common. So mm-hmm. each nation doesn't have those principles in and of themselves unless they say it reflects mm-hmm. us. But they say yeah, sure. it's common enough that that sure. is, it, it does reflect those shared values and approaches to education. And recently, relatively recently, um, over you know five to 10 years, BC under, underwent a, a curriculum transformation, revised everything, K to 12, all subject areas within a number of years. Wow. It was intense. Um, I bet. And amazing at the same time and scary. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just free fall. Let's go. Pretty yeah. much, right? Curriculum assessment, <laughs> provincial assessments, everything. assessments, everything. Wow. Um, and, and during that time, people were looking at these principles and going, you know what? Those are really powerful principles for all learners. And we're uh-huh. like saying, yeah, <laughs> exactly. No kidding. Oh, where'd you get that idea? That's weird. <laughs> so that's kind of where we are. And, and in the, you know, since then, um, because I've been, uh, my background is, as a classroom teacher and um, my work, you know, part of the discussions on the articulation of the principles and then, you know, being able to work in that advocacy um, role, people were asking, you know, can you talk more about these? Can you share more about them? And at the same time, in the last number of years, you know, the recent, um, the recent resurfacing of anti-racist discussions, um, talking about uh, continued shifts in education to make our system one that supports the whole learner. All of those things were kind of mm-hmm. percolating and coming together. And... I was doing, you know, doing work, um, workshops, et cetera, with folks. And then somebody suggested once, well, why don't you just write a book and get all your ideas in one place? And that, nah. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> nah, that sounds like busy. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, a year later, they asked again. I'm like, no. And then a month after that, I'm like, yeah, I think I need to do do that. Okay, here's the silly thing. And you're going to laugh when because everyone I've said this to who knows anything about books said, seriously, Joe, what were you thinking? I thought, well, I'll write a book. I'll get everything there. I'll put it there. And then I'll just put that out. And then I'll leave education and go open up a uh, bakery or a cupcake shop somewhere. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that did not happen. <laughs> no, but it speaks to, I mean, have I had that thought many times? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have. And then I've thought to myself, mm, maybe I should stay in the classroom and have more consistent income, maybe. <laughs> right? Like, you're like, oh, wait yeah. a minute. Yeah. And then you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to put together this extremely layered and full of research and full of experience. And I'm going to put together a book and then I'm just going to hit publish Disappear. and walk away. Yeah. And it's going to be great. <laughs> it's just going to be in the world. And that's how that, that is really funny. <laughs> but that's like self-delusion. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think so. But that's probably what got you over the hump of starting, right? Was like, absolutely. And getting into the process. You need it. Tell yourself, it's going to be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then cackle there, after the fact, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's been good. It, um, it, it, for folks who might not be, and one of the things questions I get asked a lot is how you pronounce it, the title of the book. That was going to be my um, next question. Was like, would you? Yeah, yeah would yeah. you please? And I'm going to say yes. the the first two words. There's an exclamation mark after the first two words. They are intended to be strong statements. So I'll say it loudly for folks. Way wah, way wah, and way wah is a phrase, it's a Smaliak phrase that loosely or roughly translates to it's time, let's go. And mm. so, so when I think about that, you know, way what indigenous pedagogy is an act, an act, not the act, an act for reconciliation mm-hmm. and anti-racist education. It was kind of pulling all those threads together of understanding the, the richness that indigenous knowledge systems have to contribute to the world uh, this is part of reconciliation in this country, and it's part of the continued anti-racist discussions we need to be really deeply embedded in for some time yet. Wow. So this is going to lead me then into my next question, which is, who is this book for? I think it's it's an obvious teachers, classroom teachers. So then my question becomes, who else is this book for? Yeah. I would say it's for anybody connected to education. I, I originally thought K to 12, but I've been getting a lot of folks from post-secondary um, from hmm. universities, colleges as well. Sure. Um, asking to talk with um, instructors and, and other folks within those systems. It, in the book itself, I say it's intentionally written for non-Indigenous educators as a way into a conversation. I tried to my intent was to create something that was invitational. I didn't want to create something that felt like it was a, you know, a university or college level first year or second year course that felt onerous right. to engage in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought if, I, if I'm creating something invitational, it needs to be something that's easy to access. And I like to think that it's for anybody who is wanting to say, what is a next step in my learning journey as an educator? Um, mm-hmm. What are some things that I might want to be thinking about deepening, deepening my understanding about with respect to anti-racist education and, and its connection with Indigenous education? It's for classroom teachers and it's for, you know, anybody in formal leadership positions as well. I like to use the phrase informal and formal leadership because mm-hmm. there are so many folks who might not have a, a title as a, as a leader in a, in a school or a school system, but they do just by who they are. We just know there's a social hierarchy, even if it's not a defined professional hierarchy, right? Yes, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. And and what what interested me as well in in some of the reaction to the book was folks not in education, 
their ideas in there. They said, you know, that's, that resonates. That should be something that we're talking about in the sector I work in as well. So, Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think so. So kind of along the same lines, Joe, I'm curious about an educator's journey through your work. Um, you know, I think that there are times and places to come at certain mm-hmm. pedagogical texts and right work in our practices. So uh, in your in your thought process, you know, what does an educator's experience look like with your book? You know, is there a reflection or learning that needs to happen before opening up to the first page, um, you know, when they get in, like, how do you envision educators working through what you have to share with them? What does that process look like in your imagination? Or what are the, the different ways educators might approach? There, your there's work? one requirement before you start reading the book, you have to sit down with a good cup of coffee or a cup of tea. <laughs> Love it. I'm in. I've, in. I've reached you the You poured a glass I'm of in. wine. Some folks, that's their, okay. that's, that's their reading, their sure, reading sure. average. Of you had me, Joe, you had me at hello. Let's go. <laughs> And that is it. Other than, you know, the thing that we would all want, I think, in in, um, in being connected to an education system is the just creating the space and time to say, I Mm -hmm. want to explore. Mm -hmm. Folks, I this is partly intent, but it's also reflecting on what people have been saying um, who have read the book is they it it, as I mentioned, it's kind of easy to access to get into. It asks a lot of questions for people to sit back and reflect on. And people have been doing that in a number of different ways. Some people are doing that individually. Um, You know, they'll read a little bit. There are questions in there um, specifically just for people to think about, you know, not the questions with the right or wrong answers. It's the questions Mm -hmm. about how does this apply to who each of us is? That's, that's interacting with the ideas. Well, and I think what I like, personally, what is something that I was connecting to quite a bit is almost every single time you have a reflection question, there's your personal reflection as well. And so it, for me, I can get caught up sometimes in not maybe the right or wrong, but like if questions are so big and I'm an external, an active processor, if I don't have someone to bounce it off of, you've become that person to bounce it off of because you've got your own little aside there that I go, oh, thank you. (laughs) I needed that. I needed to hear the model first so that then I can get into my own thoughts to know, oh, wait, that's what I think. Or, oh, that makes me think of articulating what I think and feel in a really, I think the word that you said before, it's accessible. It's not overly hitting you over the head with a whole lot of edgy babble. But then at the same time, it's so professionally informed because I think that's where at least, I don't know, in like 2018, 2019, before culturally responsive pedagogy was so largely a part of our larger education conversation, it was rather things like, and it wasn't called SEL yet, but it was rather things like teaching to the whole child and looking at flexible seating and looking at different modalities of understanding and letting students have choice. Those were things that were starting to come into the world, but they were also very much laughed at and frowned upon by a lot of... yes like the Twitter sphere, I would mm-hmm. say, like there was a difference between the teachers that were in maybe like Twitter and the teachers that were on like Instagram. And I found myself on like the Instagram, but I see here a marriage of the two because it's, it's, it's also, you're speaking to the whole teacher. You're speaking to the whole educator rather than just the highly researched and, or just 
the strategic touchy-feely. It's everything that then I'm able as an educator to actually pull into myself and into my practice and articulate in ways that make sense for me. Thanks. I mean, something you said, a few things you said there just generated some ahas for me. Um, <laughs> and one of them was, was that remembrance that our own education as educators, our own professional learning is like a parallel process to what you know we ask of students in our classrooms. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. the most powerful educators I've met in my um, journey in this work are folks who model that, right? They model learning and they never mm-hmm. stop. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if they've been teaching for you know, three or four decades, they still model themselves as learners. So other folks can see themselves as that. And with the first people's principles of learning and other, and other um, you know, conversations that we have around education, we talk about, you know, responding, creating environments that are responding to the whole human being that we work with, either five years old, 15 years old, 25 years old. But this is also recognizing that our whole selves come into this work. And Mm -hmm. let's be conscious of that. And let's talk about how that affects the choices that we make that impact learners. So I'm I'm really glad to hear that that, I think, is reflected um, in the reading experience of the book. And the other thing that, that when you talked about wanting to bounce ideas off, what I've also heard is a lot of folks are using this within professional learning book clubs because then they're they're mm-hmm. discussing those reflection questions with each other. Oh yeah, no, this is coming to my school with me in August. <laughs> yep. Well, it's it's so well said. I was that's what I was going to jump in. I mean, you you've even in a lot of places sectioned out like even the not even the reflection but the action steps mm-hmm. and the action steps like that that to me is not something that I commonly find in a pedagogical read is so so much of it gets very wrapped up in the theory and the pedagogy and like the big picture. Um, But for those of you who are like thinking about like, is this book, you know, something useful for my team or moving forward? I mean, if your school wants not only to understand the what, but to start doing the things, there are action steps, not just for teachers, but for leadership. So mm-hmm. uh, for classroom teachers, and I, we had, you know, every time we talked to authors with PD books, we kind of reminisce on the times where leadership will sometimes buy a bunch of books mm-hmm. and then hand them out. And while we're happy for the author for, you know, selling some books, you know, it falls so short of those action steps. And the fact that now if, if leadership is going to hand this out, They've also handed out their own action steps, right? That we can hold them accountable to. Yeah. And I love that um, because, because that is, that is how, right? Books don't alone help us, right? Overcome these things. We have to internalize, learn, keep learning and take action. And that was one of the things I thought was remarkable about other than the, the um, incredible pedagogy, but the fact that it's asking for action, yeah. you're explicitly asking for action. It's, it's the, so what? Right. It's what we learn mm-hmm. this and we understand this and or the now what? Like, let's yeah. do something with this, because, you know, we think about what obviously as well we want for learners in our classrooms is we want them to deepen our understanding, develop their competencies. But then it's all in the service of doing and, and that, yeah. that knowledge what? sitting there by itself isn't helpful. Nothing. Yeah. It's I mean, it's <laughs> cool, but like it's not <laughs> like. Neat. And yeah, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And 
and the idea too is that um, you know we've got the, the there's the action steps in there recognizing mm-hmm. that people will choose the actions that make sense according to their context and what is yeah. the thing now that I can do next there's always a do this and then reflect on it learn from it do something else and continue it's almost it's, it's a journey right whether we're talking mm-hmm. about taking steps in the water or somebody here because I'm on the coast we talk about the journey being in the canoe and everyone paddling sure. in the canoe just one paddle at a time yes. For another time, we can talk about my fear of small boats. <laughs> you say canoe, and I start to kind of shake. A you got a little bit. sweaty there, didn't you, Amanda? Yeah. Well, you, your journey is a stepping Okay. Yeah. Let's. Small boats are the ones that scare you, not the big ones. No. Oh, big boats are fine. Oh, big boats scare me. See, there's a whole boat situation See, going on. You and I are never going to hang out. Apparently. On a, and here, I want to buy a boat because I want to be out on the water. As long as it's big, I'm with you. No canoes over here for this girl. Uh-uh. I'll paddle. That's fine. Um, I think one of the things that we want to dig into now, actually, now that we're talking about like the knowledge and the necessary understandings behind doing just the work, even in your your book specifically, is we can, as educators, get really caught up on jargon and, as I said before, like edu babble and just knowing the proper or the acceptable language to use when speaking about students and the pedagogies that are being implemented at any given time. Would you help us by spending some time debriefing some of the bigger concepts from your book um, for the teachers listening? So almost so they have like a leg up. Sure. Yeah. I always start with saying terminology. It's it's the English teacher background. (laughs) I I know it's, we can't help ourselves. Can we? Yeah. We like vocab here. (laughs) Yeah. With respect to indigenous peoples and cultures, um, terminology changes and it has been changing. And some folks who might feel a little bit anxious about that. I I say to them, it's language reclamation and language Mm -hmm. reclamation is always messy. Um, it's people reclaiming how they want to be identified. And that part's messy and it's going to take some time. So a few things. Um, reconciliation in Canada is a term that is used. Now, you could speak to 100 different Indigenous peoples in this country and come up with 100 different definitions of what it means. So okay. what I what I want to share is kind of the loose, broad strokes of it. It comes Perfect. from the understanding that the history of this country with respect to the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the rest of Canada has been horrid. It has been traumatic. It has been catastrophic. They're, you know, intentional. The the hard stuff of this is that part of reconciliation is learning the true history of the country. Um, Residential schools being one assimilative policy that has been so destructive and still has intergenerational legacies, but other colonial policies as well. And really coming to understand the impact of that history, where at most mo- more folks now um, have have a grasp of that are are in that learning place, but that part hasn't been done. That is one aspect of it, and then it's the okay, where do we go from here? Once we've learned that true history of the country, what next? So the reconciliation piece is how do we move forward in a good way together? And again, many different ideas about what that looks like. But ultimately, a few things I think people share in terms of what's required. And that is that this is a journey that all of us need to be a part of. And there was um, 
Murray Sinclair, he was a, a former judge and, and a former um, a senator. He was chair of uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, that happened in, in Canada. And I'm paraphrasing his words, but they were that education got us into this mess. And I'm talking about specifically the effects of residential schools in this country. And I, I think in the United States, there was a parallel um, system. He said, education is what is going to get us out. And what that really speaks to is the impact of the work that we all do, you know, connected to um, a K-12 education system, folks connected to post-secondary education systems. And I think that's kind of where we are right now. That's part of what we're talking about with respect to reconciliation. People who might not have been part of conversations about the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples might want to take a look at that because that is also um, a framework for enacting reconciliation in this country and many other countries around the world. So that's, I think, one really big piece um, or a really big concept um, that's reflected um, in this work and, and something that we will want to continue to be talking about. A few other things, some of them is just the really simple terminology. So I use the word Indigenous in Canada to represent First Nations, uh, Inuit and Métis peoples. It, the phrase as well that some people might encounter in Canada is First Peoples, and that is used sometimes interchangeably with Indigenous. A decade ago, 10 years ago, people would have said Aboriginal. But Aboriginal was a government-imposed term. It was not a term that people themselves would, would use. Within Canada, so here's the place that gets really fun <laughs> in terms of, I need a kind of flow chart to show folks. Yeah, no, this is like fascinating. <laughs> well, because to just to quickly yeah. interrupt you, like this is, this lesson in terminology and vocabulary is exactly what not just teachers and educators need, but what we want our students to be able to understand and to have that caveat of language changes. So yeah. the terminology is going to change and like suck it up. It's going to be okay. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Like language evolves and so do people. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Keep going because this, I, I'm like forming the flow chart in my mind. Okay. Yes. So under indigenous <laughs> in Canada, first nations, Métis and Inuit, First Nations are original inhabitants of the land. Inuit are original inhabitants of the land. Métis are a very specific cultural group that grew from interactions between First Nations and European folks, and it grew from a very specific part of this country. Now, okay. the, the piece is that, you know, it's kind of a shorthand to say Indigenous, but most people here want to be identified by who they are specifically. You know, am I Inuit, okay. am I Métis, am I First Nations? And if I'm First Nations, what is my nation? So I introduce what your myself nation is, as, yeah. okay. as, you know, from Kitsum Kalem First Nation as a Tsimsian person. So for Kitsum Kalem First Nation being part of a larger Tsimsian nation. So the most respectful is if you know exactly where somebody is from, you refer to the name of the nation. And if you don't, then you kind of go into those larger groups of Go up layer and up yeah, layer and up yeah. layer. Okay. Now, I am not as knowledgeable about what this looks like in terms of the United States, other than I know that there are different nations in the United States. And correct me if I'm wrong, that the larger term that encompasses all Indigenous peoples from that land would be American Indian. I think it depends on who you talk okay. to. Uh, I mean, and this is from my own limited knowledge. Yes. And, and growing up where I am, which is in Southern California, I'm in San Diego where I've lived my whole life, and we are on native land, 
and most of this city is is built on different nations. And so the terminology that I have heard the most recently has been indigenous peoples. Me too. Yeah. Um, Or native peoples. And the word Indian, I think, is more internally used to the... Uh, to the ind- indigenous populations. And so, because I'm not in- internal to the indigenous <laughs> population, that's not a term that would be acceptable for me to use, but it can be used internally. Yeah. That's yeah. as far as I understand. Yeah. That works here too. Well, I think what you bring... Oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm so sorry. Go right ahead, no. Joe. There are, there are some First Nations here that have the name Indian still in the name of the nation. Um, mm-hmm. And some of the elders, they refer to themselves as Indians because that's how they grew up referring to themselves. But exactly. Like, sure. Uh, other than that, the term isn't used. It's used in some legal documentation here. We used to use the word native here, but it's it's still in some organizational names. But referring to people, it's usually not, except for some, again, internal internal discussions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of growing in disuse as well. And I think the growing use of Indigenous is reflected um, or is... I don't know if it's impacted by or it impacted, you know, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, mm-hmm. So perhaps that's why that term is also growing. Well, and I, I apologize. I did not mean to cut you off before I got I got excited because I was, <laughs> I was making connections. Um, and, and I think that this this exact conversation, even for, for Marie and I, is not something that we often have. And I think, you know, one thing that we're challenging ourselves to do, and therefore also our listeners, is to kind of sit with that discomfort of not knowing, yeah. of, mm-hmm. um, you know, speaking with someone who is... Uh, an expert and even can say like, you know, you know, the Canadian version, but not that we know what's going on in the United States. And and you talk about in your book, discomfort and, and making kind of sitting with the fact that we're going to make mistakes and, and what are we going to do? Are we going to sit here and be afraid of offending someone, which I hear this all the time from teachers. And I think what breaks my heart the most is sometimes American educators that at least I've talked to will sometimes let that fear override everything else. And the consequence ends up being we steer away from including voices in our curriculum or stories in our curriculum, because we're not sure if it's going to offend or provoke or right what the consequences might be. And I think it's so important for us to just practice like respectful conversations, right? Like we can start here. Uh, you know, we can have a conversation, we can explore it. Um, but I think a lot of us avoid it. And I think this is a really encouraging place to start. You know, having a book is a great place to start that conversation, that self-work, um, because maybe it is a little bit of a vulnerable step to have a conversation. So maybe this, I think your book is a great first step for teachers to start familiarizing themselves with you know, with all of this conversation and then kind of, you know, we're going to get into it a little bit later, but you know, the curriculum side of, of all of this. Absolutely. The, the, one of the most common questions that I get in any work I've done with teachers and other educators is how do I get past the fear? Um, yeah. The fear of making a mistake. We all want to do our work so well and we're afraid to make right. a mistake. We're afraid for others to see us making a mistake. And, you know, I, we can talk about ego and sometimes we have to pay attention to that and let that go. But ultimately, I go back to what it is it that we ask of learners in our classrooms. We ask them to recognize there's something that they need to learn. We all should all, I'm, I'm hoping that we'd all be in that learning space, that learning requires, you know, experiences and gathering understanding, knowledge, developing competencies or skills and then taking thoughtful risks. 
And recognizing that means we are going to make mistakes. But what do we do when we make a mistake? If we've harmed somebody, we apologize and we learn how to yeah. do better and we do better and we grow. Um, so let's ask of ourselves the same thing that we ask of learners in our classrooms. What a comforting permission to give our listeners right now. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, and we, we talked with um, a psychotherapist uh, in a couple seasons ago, and we talked a lot about the, the crippling feelings of perfectionism in our job. Mm-hmm. And I feel like perfectionism overlaps with this work in, in ways mm-hmm. that I don't think I was ever self-aware of in the classroom, that, that that's exactly to your point. I think that we sometimes forget that we need to be learners right alongside our students and model that, that vulnerability, that making mistakes and, and how to fix that. I mean, adults around us are not doing that, at least in the U S we're, we're very fixated on not apologizing and not, you know, amending or, you know, we're just, we're very much always trying to not, (laughs) not do that. So just move forward with, without making excuses and just kind of redirecting. So it feels good to hear you say that. I think we have to, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier around the whole, the whole learner and, and it's the whole of ourselves who bring to this work that is part yeah. of it as well. Um, and imagine that, I always imagine that. And sometimes it's a remembrance, you know, being in classrooms where um, teachers have talked with students about, you know, mistakes that they're making in their learning, modeling how hard it is, or being in that place of, I don't know all the answers, let's learn this together. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. And speaking of that, there was one specific, one more thing I really wanted to make sure teachers heard. I know that you have a whole chapter on this in your book. Um, there's probably no way to distill it down for a podcast, but <laughs> um, I really do think it would be powerful for you to, just to give us the quick nuts and bolts of Indigenous education versus multicultural education. Oh, yeah. Um an easy, right? It's a swap that in our quick thinking brains, we know we can make that mistake. What are the primary differences between the two? Because your chapter title is Indigenous education is not multicultural education. So can we just define that out for our listeners? I think we've got maybe a couple more questions before we wrap up, but I think that one's really important. It is understanding there's a unique place for Indigenous peoples as the original inhabitants of this land. There's a story, I won't share it now, it goes into, into length about a conversation I had with another educator who was, who was really trying to understand that. And, you know, we can, we can have conversations about, within Canada, um, the rights of Indigenous peoples are entrenched in our constitution, etc. We can have those conversations. But this is, it's understanding the impacts of colonization and, and the connection of Indigenous peoples to this place. Um, you know, if somebody is... First Nations person from this place, their languages and cultures and knowledge systems don't exist anywhere else in the world. So what does that mean? It, it's, a, it's a different conversation to have. And in, in the history of Indigenous education, whenever it has been embedded within a multicultural conversation context, the Indigenous education piece has been put aside because people don't know how to have that conversation in a really authentic way. Mm. Okay, that's very it's, helpful. Well, because it's so, I mean, and I've never, thank you for explaining that. I've never thought about it from that perspective. I guess, theoretically, it makes sense. Like, yeah, no, of course, indigenous education is different from multicultural education. Like, yeah, totally. But the layers of history are so divided by geography and so specific to this Mm -hmm. continent of what you're talking about that I'm sure other 
places around the world have similar issues and conversation, but this is quite unique to North America. No, especially because I think within both countries, Canada and the United States, in different ways, you know, the melting pot, the mosaic, but there's been a celebration of the multicultural aspect. So because uh-huh. that's been celebrated so much, folks have maybe inadvertently tried to bring the Indigenous education conversation into that, but it, it, it has not helped. It's more parallel than intersecting yeah. in, in those ways that you're talking about. Like they kind of, it's like the magnets that, um, you know, <laughs> the opposing sides that just kind of don't quite touch. They look like they should. Yeah. And, and like, but then when you really try, it just, um, it seems like it can do a whole lot of harm. Yeah. And I think if we, if we flip that, we can say there's so much we can learn from each of those conversations uniquely. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then being able to like inform with empathy each conversation from the other. Yes. Well, you know what, Joe, I actually think we should probably, we have so many more, we have more questions. I have some questions about stories that I want to ask you, but I think we're going to need to save those for the happy hour extended episode that is coming out. So listeners, we are going to sign off right now with Joe, but we are not going anywhere too far because members of happy hour, we're going to continue this conversation because I want to start getting into more of the English language arts nerd side. Yeah, we do. Of content and curriculum and stories. And I'm really excited to get some titles from you. We're going to pick apart your bookshelf, Joe. (laughs) Yes, basically. Yeah, we're going to need you to pan your corner, right? Or your camera right over to the Uh corner of your books that I can see behind you. Um, Before we sign off for this episode, would you please tell our listeners where they can find your book and then where they can also find you? I am in British Columbia, joecrona at gmail.com. And... The book, I think, is pretty much available through most online book retailers. Because it's a more of a niche book in terms of an education focus, it's not necessarily in a lot of small independent bookstores, which I wish it were. Sure. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Portage and Main Press out of Manitoba um, is the publisher, so they also have access. But I, people have found it on Amazon. They found it um, basically on any you know online site that sells so that major retailers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Perfect. That is fantastic. Thank you Thank so you much so for much. making the time to speak with us and all of the setup and the logistics of making this happen. We are so grateful to have your voice in the podcast, your voice with all of the other voices of this series. It's just so incredibly powerful what um, you have now made available and possible for teachers. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. There's a, a in Somalia to say thank you to a single person. It's Toaxit uh, Nun, but to say thank thank you to more than one person, it's Toaxit Newsom. So I'd say Toaxit Newsom. Toaxit Newsom. Okay, that's so beautiful. Thank you. All right, friends. Like I said before, we're going to continue this conversation on the happy hour side of things because we have some more, you know, real nerdy questions to ask you. But for now, I want to say thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you again, Joe, for joining us. And uh, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to Brave New Teaching. We'd love to keep the conversation going over on Instagram. And while you're there, check out the links in our bio for the most up-to-date events going on in the Brave New Teaching community. Thanks for being here and have a great week at school. 